I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Noradjuri people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Go out there and just the energy at that vineyard for me is something else. Like you go out there and it's, I don't know, the air is different, the, the, the feel of the place is different to everywhere else I've been. It's, you, you kind of just have to experience it, I can't really explain it. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Gertie Wines is the epitome of a micro wine operation with a very big heart. And Ben Marks is the cheeky fellow behind the label. With over 20 years in the industry, Marksy is known for his knowledge of growing grapes and making wine. Hi, Marksy. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for putting some time aside for, for me. Now, you were dragged onto this podcast by sheer peer pressure. You're not usually the type to shout from the rooftops about yourself. Or if I got that wrong, maybe you are. Um, I think I'm probably... I'd like to tell the world about, you know, what I'm doing and about my brand, but it generally tends to be, I, I just, there's not enough hours in a day. So I tend to be sort of a little bit reclusy, but I mean, I guess that's part of country life as well. So I'm okay with that. <laughs> I think that you're just very humble, but it's true. You do have a lot on your plate. Would you, for everybody listening, can you run us through a little bit about how or where your journey in wine began? Oh, geez, it started way, way back. I was actually inspired a little bit by Keanu Reeves, of all people. Um, I think it was like one of the first times I was allowed home without a babysitter. So I sort of, the first thing you do is you stay up late and watch TV. Um, I think it was like a Wednesday night or something. So there wasn't exactly heaps of options. And this is back in the day. There was only three TV channels back then. And one of the movies was, um, it was called A Walk in the Clouds by, and Keanu Reeves was the main actor in it. And I sort of stayed up and watched that and it was pretty soppy. It's a love story. I've gone back and watched it since and it's pretty cringe. But anyway, I got inspired. I thought, hey, that's 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 what I want. That's what I, that's the dream. And so I just kind of went from there and wanted to be a winemaker or viticulturalist ever since. Um, so from there, I went back and started no studying chemistry um, so I could get into university. Um, did a few overseas vintages, mucked around for a bit. Um, and it's, I think it's a bit like the, when you get the travel bug, you know, you get bitten by it and you can't, you can't let it go. Um, and I think the wine industry is quite like that because the more you learn, the more you're drawn in. And the more you're drawn in, the more you learn. And it just becomes this perpetual cycle that I, I honestly don't think I could get out of even if I wanted to. Yeah, it's certainly intoxicating in more, more ways than one. Oh, absolutely. And I think from then I just sort of, you know, got in more you learn I've done a little stint in the UK selling wine um, for Majestic I did a um, met some wonderful people along the way Um, it always staggers me in this industry how generous people are just with information um, learnings what they've done what worked what didn't work all you've got to do is ask the question Um, it's such an amazing industry in that respect whereabouts did you travel when you when you went overseas Um, I've done quite a few vintages through Australia. So I'm originally from New Zealand. So I did quite a few through New Zealand. I had a tiny little brand called Marksman when I was at uni, which I sort of, you know, made two barrels of wine Mm. and sold it to friends and family and whatnot. Um, And then, then sort of went through Central Otago, um, then Western Australia, Victoria, uh, England, Italy, France, 
I like that idea of Markman. I mean, I feel like that could come back maybe in, as a grupper or something like that. But I love the name of it. I think that that needs to be revisited at some point. <laughs> yeah, I've still got it. I've still, I think I've got about three bottles left just for memorable, you know, the wine's terrible, but, you know, it was a living. <laughs> what was your first memory of kind of drinking wine and, and really enjoying it? Do you have like a moment where, you know, you had a particular bottle that kind of stands out for you? I think it would probably be back in the UK. Like, you have, like, wines that you really love and, um, and I, you know, you, they, there's wines that stick with you, but the ones that really, like, really, really stuck with me, um, when you work, because everything's incentivized over there, you get, they come and do, like, a big tasting just before Christmas, all the big-name brands, you know, and um, there was, um, Fijiac was one of the wines we tasted. It was an 01 Fijiac, and... There was a Krug. I can't remember what vintage it was, but I remember tasting those wines and just thinking, holy smokes, like that that's why people love Bordeaux and that's why people love Champagne. It was just, it had everything. It touches you, like you put it in your mouth and it touches every single sense that there is. It was amazing wines. Um, so I've still got a bottle of O1 Fijiac in the cellar. I'm too scared to taste it, just in case it was, you know, not as good as I remember, but always hold on to that. It was really, really good. Well, and, and you know, it probably, you know, it can spend a lot more time in, in your cellar, you know. Those wines tend to tend to only just get better and better. So, um, but don't let it go too long and miss the opportunity. No, I think if that happens, I'll just keep it for sentimental value forever. Now, tell me, you've worked in the Clare for a little while now, and you've certainly worked for some of the biggest names of the Clare Valley. What were your biggest takeaways at your time at Napstein and, and um, now at Jim, Jim Barry? Um, I think the moment that sticks with me the most at, at Nappers was we were in a tasting, like we used to do allocation tastings and benchmark tastings all the time. And I remember we were sort of down in the tasting room underneath the winery, and just one like I'd been working really really hard and I got to the point where I was thinking geez maybe I'm just not cut out for this like I've been working really really hard on my palate trying to get you know dial it in and understand it and then there's a there's a eureka moment that comes it had just been working so hard on it so hard and then all of a sudden we sat down for one allocation tasting and I remember it was Glenn Barry was the chief winemaker there and I remember sitting down at that tasting and he's he, he was put his glass down and he was gobsmacked it's like holy look at you come from you know being <laughs> way off to just nailing it nailing it and it was just I don't it was just all that hard work just paid off and it all just fell into place one day um, so that's probably my most exciting memory out of out of Nappers um, and then moving across to Jim Barry I think by which point We'd had some amazing times through Nappers. Um, it was an amazing corporate. It was owned by Lion at the time, um, and we had we had amazing times. They they the takeaways from there were endless. Um, but we knew we had it good when we were there as well. So that was always a an amazing point to take away as well. You know, it's all very well to say that was an amazing time, but I wish I'd known it at the time. We knew it at the time, and it was. It was awesome. And then moving across to Barry's, I think at that point, their resources are, well, 
it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. But our resource of fruit is amazing. We've literally got some of the best vineyards mm. in Clare and we get to pick and choose the bits out of them. So we get to make, you know, wines that are, that a lot of people in Clare, they, they, they can't make because they don't have the fruit resource. So, I mean, I think that's always a really, really exciting part of the job for um, working through berries. The Clare is an incredible part of Australia and, you know, some of the wines coming out of the Clare are so distinctive. But what do you love and what do you think makes the Clare Valley unique if we kind of talk about it in an Australian sense and both in an international sense as well? Um, well, we do. I mean, I think the, the berries have kind of done it quite well, shown a really good expression of it because we do what's a collaboration with Ernie Lucen. Um, so we make a clear Riesling in the Germanic style and they make a Germanic Riesling in the clear style. And I think even with those two, like with the intention of trying to make it a different style, it's not as, it's not as genuine. It just doesn't feel right. I love the wine. But I think, especially from the German coming this way, I've always wondered is, you know, sometimes terroir and that whole, the whole ecosystem of where the fruit comes from, you just can't replicate it and it just really suits our style. And I think for me, Claire has this, it's, it's, it's a very, it's not a valley that's just straight up and down. There's lots of these little offshoots and like all those sort of air currents you know, they, they all flow differently. There's, you know, different altitudes, there's different aspects. There's, you know, it's such a little tapestry of vineyards and little ecosystems within those, which I think that's what makes Clare special. And the fact that, you know, at, at night, it's cold. Like, we're still getting down to, you know, 13 degrees at night at the moment, yet we're having 40 degree days. Mm. So I think in that respect, I think Clare is, it's this little pocket and it is I think when you start exploring the back roads of Clare it is actually a beautiful valley I think a lot of people take it for granted but you, you sort of start hunting around and there's some actually breathtaking scenery um, and we, we were lucky enough to um, buy a vineyard oh, was that in 2020 probably the, one of the worst years ever to buy a vineyard due to the drought um, but you, know, <laughs> you, you live and learn um, and, and that's in one of those spots we're at about ooh, 560 metres to 580 metres above sea level so that's pretty high even by clear standards but it's a little amphitheatre it's, it's an amazing spot and you go out there and just the energy at that vineyard for me is something else like you go out there and it's I don't know the air is different the the feel of the place is different to everywhere else I've been. It's you, you kind of just have to experience it. I can't really explain it. Well, I like that. You have to be there to see it and experience it. And I, there's a lot of things in like that in life. It's that, just that age old saying is you should have been here yesterday or you've just got to, you got to feel it and, and see it. So I, I agree with you on that point. I think the Claire for me as well, the wines, um, transient in time and I, I for me personally I think that the Rieslings the Shiraz the Malbec they really are wines that look fantastic on release but just 
just look sensational with time. And, I, and you know, it's probably um, my recommendation that people give some of the Rieslings, you know, longer than you experience and you think in the cellar because I think that they really have the, the – the, longevity to last and i think that you know in particular shiraz looks amazing with some time in bottle i 100 percent agree and i think you know for the for the gertie brand i've always kept at least a whole an entire layer of a palette back for library stock i mean my my production's tiny i'm you know a massive year for me would be three and a half tons like i make wine from very specific vineyards <laughs> chasing a very specific style because it's wine I'm making that I want to drink without any restrictions from anyone else. Um, but that's quite a big percentage of that make. But I think just with time, I just the, the, the wines evolve, they create themselves. There's a lot of things there that I think we don't understand as people, how things evolve, why they evolve, what are the chemical reactions in there, you know, how are tannins reacting, how's, you know, the mouthfeel, the alcohol, how are all these things interacting? And I think that's, like you say, the, the wines are built and I just think we're only just starting to realise how built they are and how long they can go. Now, Gertie Wines began in 2016. Uh, I love everything about Gertie Wines. I, I love the label is one of the prettiest labels you have ever seen. Um, I love that you are a, you started as a single varietal bottling and Cabernet Franc of all things. Um, it really says so much about you, this understated, um, like I said, cheeky fellow that uh, probably says more in what you don't say. But how did Gertie Wines all come about? Um, so at the time... I sort of was, I was sort of inspired by a couple of mates that were sort of going out and doing their own thing. And I sort of got stopped and thought about it. And I thought, like, all the wine I've made, like, I've got to work with some absolute amazing, like, legends of the wine industry. Um, but it's always making wine for, for, for someone else. So the, the onus has always kind of been, a, like, you know, it's you as a winemaker you kind of have to step aside and say well this isn't my choice because I'm not I don't own this wine particularly but in this instance you can and you can say those decisions are mine and I want to see how good a winemaker or bad I really am like I want to go out there and see it and I think that's where it kind of started that sort of thought process and then I thought hey Cabernet Franc I mean I've always thought that would do amazing in clear and there used to be quite a lot of plantings of it. But I guess my advice now would be, if you're going to start a brand, start a brand where there's fruit available. Everyone's pulled it out or it's, you know, long gone. But I think I wanted something that it was never meant to be a wine show wine. It was never meant to take over the world. It was just meant to be, you know, a nice little project for me, some experiment, some, you know, I guess a test for me to see if I can do it um, and the name came around it was actually my great aunt who was I don't know she was a little bit of a feminist I guess in a way way back in the day she was always you know when women were sort of you know had that real cliche of you know stay at home and you know look after raise the kids and all that she was out there you know punching out she was you know 
out on the farm helping she was she was getting in and getting amongst it and kind of went against that stereotype and I thought that was quite fitting for this brand the wine's not out there to be mm. winning shows it's not out there to be you know if you like it you like it if you don't that's okay you don't have to um, and I think that's kind of I always thought that was quite fitting because I think Gertie great aunt Gertie she didn't really care about what other people thought she was just out there doing it she sounds like uh, a force to be reckoned with and I like her already what are the pros and cons of kind of Cabernet Franc in the vineyard I mean my experience of Cabernet Franc you know has been a little bit you know of, of kind of maybe Wendery or but you know a lot of kind of of Chinon and a lot of France and uh, I remember when I listed uh, your your Gertie wine for the first vintage uh, on the list at Key and it, and it was in this tiny little you know little lonesome area of its own of Clare Valley Cabernet Franc and I thought wow I hope that one day I see that and it's got a few more listings down there next <laughs> next to it but they're going to have to be pretty good wines to to be listed uh, and it is such a beautiful wine but talk me through how it behaves in the vineyard. Oh in the vineyard it's it's one of those I mean as a grape it's kind of I guess it's very similar to Cabernet it can get a little bit I don't know, sensitive around flowering. It does get a little bit of, you know, berry shatter, so they don't quite, the, the berries don't necessarily set particularly well. Um, it's pretty resilient. Like, it, as far as drought goes, it it's not scared of, you know, some dry, hot days. Um, but I think the, as a, well, on our, I'll, I'll talk you through our vineyard because that's probably what I've got the most I do take from a couple of growers as well, so I guess I'll talk about how I treat Cabernet Franc um, because that's what I know. But we sort of we do, we go against any chemical, so we've gone against. Well, we no longer use copper or sulphur on the vineyard, so we run. A, we've made life pretty hard. Like conventional viticulture is conventional because it works and it's you know efficient. We have to do masses of hands-on shoot thinning and bunch thinning and things like that to make sure that we, you know, we concentrate heavily on airflow through the vineyard and through the vines. So that's almost our, um, that's how we combat fungal disease, um, keeping it dry, keeping airflow running through the vines. Um, and we also work on plant resilience. So plant health is critical for us. So when we go out spraying, we're spraying, we're tweaking all those little sort of micronutrients. So we're using sort of a kelp-based extract. We use a product called Nutrisoil, which is like a worm castings. Um, we use uh, we use a, a product called Stimplex, which is again kind of a uh, an organic-y, just refined micronutrients and things like that to help stimulate resilience within the vine. And I think that for us. It's tough. Cabernet Franc is a tough varietal. It doesn't mind. Like it's pretty resilient to most most pests. It's reasonably resilient to because the bunches are quite sort of open and the berries are reasonably um, small. It gets a lot of airflow through, so it's not overly susceptible to fungal disease. So I guess in in some respects, it's actually really suited to the clear. But like I say, no one has it anymore. It was. It's not cool. (laughs) 
I think it's pretty cool. What, um, when you say, you know, you want, you're producing a Cabernet Franc that you want to drink, what are you trying to avoid? If you, you were to say, you know, that these are the mistakes I think some people make when it comes to Cabernet Franc. So what are you, what are you trying to um, produce in terms of something that you want to drink? I always use, I always think about it and think, you know, there's a lot of wine that I can sit down and, re- and drink a glass, really, really enjoy it. But would I go back for a second glass? Mm, maybe, but not necessarily. I wanted to make a wine that you drink by the bottle. Like you can sit down and, and that runs a really fine line for me. Like it can't be too, it needs to be drinkable. So not, it needs to have a easiness about it. But it also has to have an interest element because if it's just boring and too easy to drink, you just kind of get bored of it before the end of the bottle and that's it. You're back to square one. So for me, I think it's about, you know, it's about brightness of fruit. It's about interest and building interest into wine is actually really, really hard. It's easy to make sort of sterile fruit driven wines, but I think adding interest, but not faults, if you know what I mean, you can't. You can't rely on VA to give you interest because it doesn't quite work like that. Um, it needs to be interest of Lee's contact. It needs to be interest of, you know, old or oak. It needs to be interest of, you know, skin contact. It needs to be interest from, you know, tannin structure from, from skins. And it's not about just leaving it on skins. It's a very, it's a very, very, there's a time. You'll see tannins build and build and build and build and build. And then once they hit their pinnacle, bam, that's when you've got to go. That's when you press. It's not a, oh, I'll leave it on there for three weeks because that sounds like a good number. It's meticulously tasting, tasting, Mm. tasting, tasting, tasting all the time. And then you get those components and then you put them together and you almost like build the wine. So you're building the structure, you're building the the flavor profile, you're building the aromatics, you're building all the bits sort of come together and, and, and make a wine that, you know, hopefully people are drinking by the bottle. I think it's so interesting that you talk about um, drinkability with Cabernet Franc because my experience for a long time of Cabernet Franc was such hard, muscular, almost mean wines. And I think the best Cabernet Francs have a real pretty lithe element to them. And I think you've captured that in Gertie wines. They, they have, like you said, the the kind of um, exotic aromatics, but beautiful acidity and then, you know, firm tannins, but very grainy and dusty. And you've kind of ticked all the boxes. And like you said, it it is a wine that's just, um, it's so alive and um, indulgent in a way as well. And and I'm really interested to see, I I know with the first vintage that, you know, after another um, year in the bottle, it was a completely different beast. So I've kept one of each of your, your, first few vintages in the cellar just to see you know and I'm really looking forward to trying them later down the track and I mean when I started this project I mean these wines were never made to you know live for a hundred years that was never their intention and I sort of kept them back and I sort of taste you know each year I taste back through all the vintages and that 2016 is like in my mind when I made that wine I thought oh you know five years it'll be fallen over but it doesn't really matter because who's going to sell it for five years? They'll probably 
you know, hopefully people are drinking it. But that wine's smoking. I, I look back on that wine and think, geez, like that's a, that's still in a really, really good place. So and I guess that comes back to that sort of element of understanding of what's going on in that bottle that we don't really grasp yet about, you know, interaction between tannins and, you know, reduction in sulfur and, you know, all of my wines, none of them are fi- um, none of them are fined and none of them are filtered. They're just racked. So I guess leaving all that sediment behind, but they're still going to bottle with a fair whack of turbidity. Um, they're not certainly not going through any sterile filtration or anything like that. So I guess you know there's an element there again that we don't understand. How are those things that are left in there acting within that equilibrium of um, you know of aging and bottle? So I mean, this say there's so much there, but yeah, you can get you can get carried away with it and talk about it for hours. And that's where you, like you said, it, the more you get into wine, the more it draws you in, and the more there is to find out. And like you said, you can have all the technical um, technical aspects of the wine, but there's some things that you you don't know until you know you taste them later down the track. Absolutely, and I think that's part of the the mystery, part of the the wonder about wine you know there's there's so much that we don't know um and i mean the same goes into viticulture you know there's so much within that plant and soil health and things like that that we're just we're just tipping like scratching the tip of the iceberg and the more you get into it the more you're kind of like wow that makes so much sense um so my my winter read this year was um nicole master's book called for the love of soil and she talks about, you know, soil health and like just, I mean, we can talk about it, but soil health in general, but she gets down into, you know, more intricate sort of parts of it. And there's books that go into much more depth than hers, but hers was just that really good level for where I am in my journey about, you know, interpreting things to what, to a meaning, you know, like going, you know, everyone has weeds in their vineyard. What are those weeds telling you? You know, and I sort of, read the book and went out into the vineyard and sort of, you know, there's a patch of sort of, you know, docks grows there. So like, why do they grow there? You know, there's probably compaction and, you know, a boggy part, sure enough. Boggy part, there's a little spring that comes out there. It's always, you know, reasonably heavily compacted there because you got to drive over wet soil with a tractor and it starts sort of making sense. You start stopping thinking, well, geez, if that makes sense, what about these other weeds? What do they mean? And you know, what's that telling me? It's all these amazing things that we're just learning and learning and learning. Um, so much that we don't know. It's such an exciting journey, I guess. Yeah, always changing. I love that. Talk to me a little bit about your approach in the vineyards, because um, I know that you make a, a solid effort to think um, kind of eco-friendly. So talk to me a little bit about that approach um, in, in your vineyard. Um, so we kind of went, we were incredibly lucky. We bought this vineyard off a, a, an older gentleman who was sort of winding down, I guess, wanting to, you know, it was becoming too much for him. Um, so he planted the block in 1984. He replanted after Ash Wednesday. So it was originally planted for Grosset. So it was when used to go into his Polish hill before Grosset got into, you know, planted his own vineyards. And he always, because it was, you know, planted for Grosset, it was always sort of managed, I guess, in a respectful way to the environment. We wanted to kind of, we wanted to carry that on. 
but we kind of wanted also to take it a little bit further in the respect that it's not I guess there was that whole natural wine movement and now there's sort of that whole you know sustainable viticulture movement and I think we're not doing it to be cool or fit into that area like when we don't we're not certified anything we just do it because we think that's what's right to do and I think going into the vineyard you know how how can we make our vineyard like this is our block it's not it, we're in a very fortunate position that you know I, I work a day job and you know worst case scenario you know we lost a year's crop in the vineyard yeah sure that would set us back a fair way but it's not going to sink us like we're not going we're not going under because we lose a crop so in that situation why don't we push a boundary why don't we see how far we can go and I think the more you read and the more you talk to you know the the older generation throughout the valley and there's heaps of them and they're just itching to give info they just need to be asked and I think for me that pushing into that sort of you know regenerative agricultural type zone I mean yeah sure it may seem like we're moving with a trend but I guess that's part of the reason why we don't you know sing it from the hilltops on social media I'm probably one of the worst people at social media terrible but I think you know I don't think you need to scream it from the hilltops if it's something that you really believe in and are doing it because I don't have time to go out there and do photo shoots in the vineyard because I'm out there shoot thinning or you know tucking or you know um, things like that you know I guess it almost relates back to time um, and what's important and for us that whole you know less chemicals healthy plants creating resilience on their own um, that for me is driven from the soil up if you have soil that's in impeccable condition everything you grow in there is going to have from your veggies that you grow out in the, you know in the veggie garden are going to be full of nutrients they'll be nutrient dense they'll be your vines will be healthy your fruit's got to have better flavor because you've got a you know a, a vine in its in its prime um, and i think those sort of nuances for us are what's making the difference I, I totally agree with you. And I think that, um, it, that it's such a smart approach, but it also makes a lot of sense. A lot of people talk about cover crops and the, the benefits of, like you said, using kind of native species. What are the benefits, just, just to run us through, to the vine, to the soil, what, what are the choices that you're making? Because I think that that is something that um, I don't think anyone's ever explained on the podcast. And I just think it's quite fascinating, especially in the different approaches around Australia. Um, well, there's a couple of people that have been doing this longer than I have. I think Dan Falkenberg's probably the the oracle of it. But um, for us, we, we were quite lucky when we bought the vineyard. We had a pretty good stand of native grasses throughout the vineyard anyway. So we're starting from a reasonably good base. But I think it's not just about, for me, natives. I've sort of, on our journey, I sort of went along this path where I was obsessed with having everything, like I want to be 100% native, the whole vineyard. And then it's sort of, my partner Catherine sort of said, we were, we were talking one night and she said, but what's in the soil? Like our primary production here is grapes. They're not native. 
And you start thinking, well, you're right. Mm. They're not. So we're taking, you know, natives. It's native soil. It's native plants. You know, that creates its own ecosystem. But we've introduced this other catalyst of grapes. They're taking out. So every grape or every leaf that we lose off that property, we have to replace that somehow. So where I was going down a line of being, you know, we need to have natives because that's what we, you know, that creates the best ecosystem and the best, you know, beneficial bugs and things like that. We sort of went down this path of, well, we need to replace what we're taking off. So maybe that's not going to be done by purely natives. So now we're looking at, you know, trying to broaden that out. What's the vine taking out each year of the soil? So what do we need to replace and how much of it do we need to replace? So those sorts of things were sort of going fairly heavily down there. And, you know, years, you have to be a little bit reactive as well because, you know, we've had such a wet start to this season. So compaction is going to be an issue moving forward just because we had to get out there and get nutritional sprays on for the vineyard. We didn't have a choice. We had to get out there. I did a couple of blocks by backpack, but, you know, it's just so much time. So I think as far as cover crops go for me, this year we're focused on building carbon because we had such a wet wet winter, we've gone along the lines of, so we let masses, like we, we've, mowed, we've mowed twice this year um, on a wet year, that's that's not many passes. Um, but we're, our aim there is to try and grow as much leaf mass as we possibly can, have as much photosynthesis happening on our block as we possibly can, building soil fungi and bacteria down in the soil and then once we knock all that off, so we mow to, we won't mow any closer to the ground than about a foot. Um, so my slash is literally on its highest setting because what we're looking for is to build like a mat across the soil. So we have no bare soil on our vineyard at all. That's like the, if you see bare soil, that's a, the kids are on me. That's bare soil, Dad. Oh, geez, better get on that. So that's just opening up places for weeds to grow. But those sorts of things for me, like looking at the season, and yes, we've got surplus water this year. We've got the cover crop there. Let's build it. Let's pull it up. Like, let's get it really cranking. And this is our opportunity to get free carbon because it's all going back into the soil. It's going to take some time, sure. But we're running at about 2% carbon in our soil at the moment. I want to get it to 10 well, our first our first port of call is to get it to five percent, which is, I think, where the sort of it becomes you know you start getting close to a perpetual cycle with, you know, the amount of carbon that's in the soil, growing enough on top of the soil and within the soil, to sort of almost start being self sustainable. So those sorts of goals, but you've got to look at that on the on the year that's ahead of you as well, because if you're having a if we if this turned out to be a drought year, we would have put ourselves in a mountain of poo because you know it would have sucked all of the water out mm. vines would be stunted would have um you know short shoots struggling berries especially now when it suddenly got hot you know right at that cell division stage where you're setting the size of your berries almost you know and you run out of water oh back to square one so it's such a complex beast and there's so many theories that you sort of come up with and you know but again it's coming back to talking to people um throwing these discussions around, having them. I don't envy you when it comes to all of those decisions that you do have to make in challenging years, that's for sure. Uh, 
what is the plan for Gertie Wines? Um, I know there's t- talk about Malbec. Is that right? Joining the joining the line uh, in the past. Um, I do a collaboration with um, with a guy Seb, who owns Real Wines. So I do a little collaboration, sort of side label with him. Um, so I think the intention is to grow for sure. Um, so we've got Grenache Gris in the in the ground. So well. I was hoping this year we might have a crack at a rosé, but oh, just looking at the fruit, it was a pretty tough flowering. I'm not sure whether we're going to get enough to make it viable, but we'll, we'll see, we'll try. Um, what is exciting is in 2021, I took a, a parcel of fruit that I was a little bit, I was pretty excited about. I was, yeah, I thought, I thought wow. And we, I was just sort of, at that point, I was just looking at things and thinking, you know, how, how, where is this brand going? And I thought, geez, we need, we need premiumization. We need something like a flagship wine. And in reality, you know, a $35 bottle of like retail world of Cabernet Franc, but the costs are only going up. That's, that's, that's not going to be sustainable forever. So I thought, wow, why don't we make a... Why don't, well, I haven't named it yet because we're still working through the packaging. But I'm doing a premium Cabernet Franc. Um, so it's built around... It's built around... It's, I guess it's a little bit of a winemaker's, nerdy winemaker's, you know, those, those, who, those who will get it will get it. Those who don't just completely will not get it. Um, but there's only about 150 litres of it. It's off a very specific block, and I wanted to build a wine with structure and tannin, but I didn't want to keep. I didn't want to build that from oak for two reasons: one, it's not big enough volume to fill an oak barrel, and b, you can't to add oak to wine. You almost need to have enough of it to spread, like almost a shotgun approach, I guess, because too much of one barrel becomes. You know the dominating feature you need you know some aspects of this barrel some aspects and some aspects of those barrels and then you kind of build your masterpiece from there so what i did is i thought well how can i get this so i hived some off into a um into a vc which is a variable capacity tank and i've gone along this line thinking well how do i build this how do i make a wine that's so interesting and has enough draw and enough quality aspects to be, you know, to start dabbling in that, you know, hundred bucks a bottle type territory. And so I've got, I've built that through skin tannin. Um, I've built that through that interaction with acid and I've, you know, built in, you know, considered the fact of, you know, where, where's the weight coming from? And it's coming from, you know, it comes from the alcohol. It comes from the interaction between tannin and acid. It comes it comes from you know time on leaves to build in that sort of creamy and mid palette. You know, there's all these things that like you've I've basically put everything I've learnt to date into this wine, thinking in a calculated way, thinking how do I get these aspects that I need without the resource of you know just using oak as that as that builder. And I'm pretty excited about this wine. Its its packaging is going to be sick. It's ridiculous. It's so expensive. It'll be worth it. It'll be fine. How exciting. And that sounds like um, 
Sounds like a giant of a wine in terms of just well, the thought process behind it, but um, sounds really, really special. And I think that there's definitely a little gap in the market there for, for something so special that like a lot of things, the problem will be that there's not not much to go around, but um, very exciting. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. But um, yeah, we're just still working through a few few packaging details and hopefully be on the market before the end of the year. Well, a lot to live up to because your other label of Gertie Wines is just one of one of my favourites and a, a, something a lot of people, com- um, you know, comment on actually. So, yeah, you've got a lot to live up to. Now, Marksy, if you know this uh, question's coming, if you could only drink three boozy beverages for the rest of your life, what are they going to be? Geez, I've been thinking about this because I've listened to a few of your podcasts and I knew this was coming. And I thought, oh. And to be honest, I, don't, I still haven't really come to a conclusion. But I think for me, it's seasonal. You know, it's, it's pretty warm here. So we'll be, you know, we'll be tickling probably close to 40 degrees here today. And I think for me, it's got to be, it's got to start with something like a G&T. I mean, I know it's a little bit cliche, but how refreshing and cleansing is that after a hot day? 100%. Jeez, I'd have to... I'd have to put wine. Like, do I have to? Do I have to narrow it down to a varietal of wine? No, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, wine would have to be in there, but I think primarily something you know in that lighter red spectrum, lighter Syrah type territory. And geez, number three. If I'm going deep, like if I'm settling in, a dirty martini. So good. It's so good. They're so delicious and. Yeah, one of those. The problem with the dirty martini, I find, is that they're so good that I'm always like, should we go another? And, you know, my heart is saying yes, and so is the rest of my body. But my brain's going, no, I don't think that's a great idea, you know? And, uh, yeah, it's often a battle. (laughs) I always have them at the end of the night as well, and I think, man, you should have stopped before then. But. Yeah, that martini, that's that's what did it. That put you right over the edge. That's what accounts for all those bad decisions. Ah, <laughs> uh, the marksman at it again. When your alarm goes off at sort of five in the morning, so you go out shoot thinning or pruning or something like that, man, you, you're feeling it. Yeah, <laughs> don't doubt it. Well, Marksy, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. Uh, and look at you go, you know, 45 minutes. I knew you had it in you. (laughs) Thank you so much for making time. No worries. Thanks a lot. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.